As a nation, we appear fascinated with the phenomenon of the woman who kills. In the last year alone, both ITV and Channel 4 have launched popular documentary series chronicling the shocking lives and crimes of women who commit murder. But what is it about the murderess that renders her so interesting? To social historian Dr Anna Jenkin, it is her ability to offer unique insight into the gender dynamics and broader cultural climate of the society in which she lives. Anna's PhD thesis explores female-perpetrated homicide in 18th century London and Paris. I caught up with Anna to discuss the findings of her research. I began by asking what it was that inspired her to investigate the topic. So I started as an undergraduate studying 18th century London and in my second year of my undergraduate I looked specifically at the case of Sarah Malcolm who is a serial killer, mass murderess in 1730s London and I found the case a really interesting insight into an aspect of life in London and life in women's lives specifically that often you don't get a lot of detail about so although it's quite, it was quite an extreme example of a, a woman who kills her employer and two other maids and the household where she's working in telling her story you actually got much more of the intricacies of everyday life in London at this time and so I thought this was a really interesting way of thinking about how women and men were living in these cities but also much broader dynamics of power because because female murder is such a a rare act or and was such a rare act it was particularly distressing to a society um, in which it took place particularly in these very close urban areas so you found a lot of broader dynamics of power projected onto these cases so that is sort of why I decided upon the question of female murder and I wanted to look specifically at 18th century London and Paris because it is this time when both cities were undergoing very major uh, paths of, of modernization and growth there was a great deal of similarities between these two cities which were undergoing huge amounts of population expansion uh, as well as economic booms which were leading to this sort of growth of a a bourgeois or, or middling sort. But on, on the other hand, politically, there was these huge differences between London post the Glorious Revolution and France before the French Revolution, which meant that there's some really interesting similarities and differences that can be unpicked between these two cities. And so I chose to use female homicide, which is such a rare crime that contemporaries and commentators don't have the kind of general narratives of, of criminality, of, of violence to project onto them. And so when trying to understand and unravel these crimes, people drew from much more complicated or perhaps more run-of-the-mill everyday uh, narratives in seeking to explain and understand what was going on. So I used this very small lens in which to understand much bigger narratives of change that these two cities were going under at the same time, but also in quite different ways. I asked Anna to elaborate on the proportion of female-perpetrated murder to male-perpetrated murder. Yes, so female homicide in the 18th century, particularly in London and Paris, was about 10% of male homicide. So I found about 2,000 cases of of male perpetrated homicide in London for the period 1715 to 1789. And for that same period, about 200 cases of female perpetrated homicide. And the same in in Paris, the Parisian court is much larger. So I found about 500 cases of of female perpetrated homicide and and 5,000 cases of male homicide. So in both cities, it's about a tenth, which interestingly is actually the same proportion of homicide today. 
So it is a much rarer crime. But I think what was interesting about the urban context is that you often find in the historiography and in writing about female homicide for this period, quite a lot of stereotypes of female homicide as being something that is very polarised. So when women are treated in the court, or other historians have argued, women are either completely innocent or entirely guilty. Whereas for men, there is this uh, much stronger category of men who are found guilty of manslaughter. And this, the argument goes, is because men were in spaces like uh, pubs and drinking houses where they were more likely to get into kind of drunken brawls. And it is true that statistics show that more women were acquitted of murder than men. But actually, the conviction rates were almost exactly the same in both cities and for men and women, which is about 20% um, of cases led to a, an execution in the two cities. So the number of women who are actually being executed for murder, although it's smaller, the proportion um, is the same for men and women. And although there are fewer women being found guilty of manslaughter, the kinds of cases that we would associate with male murder, so drunken brawls, things where people are just grabbing the nearest instruments and smacking each other over the head with them, uh, you do find with women as well in both cities. And I think that's particularly interesting. It says something about the kind of lives that women were living at this time. We tend to think that they were becoming cloistered and that everything was becoming much more domestic and women weren't having the opportunities to go out and get into these very tense situations. But that doesn't appear to have been the case. I should say that actually homicide statistics are an incredibly difficult thing to deal with because although it is likely that most times when a murder was committed, we can sort of assume that it would have led to a prosecution. We can't know that. Um, And there could be a huge number of murders that took place in the 18th century that didn't end up in the courts. It's unlikely that there would have been a great deal because there were quite strong judicial infrastructures by the 18th century. But we don't know. So it could be that women were committing a lot more murders somewhere else that they weren't being prosecuted for. I don't think that's probably the case, but you, you never know. Anna's comments regarding the difficulties in measuring homicide statistics led me to inquire as to how she had gone about conducting her research. I wanted to know which databases she had used, and whether she had found these to be particularly effective, or whether there had been limitations. Uh, Yes, so for London, I used the Old Bailey Online, um, which is a fantastic resource of digitised transcripts of all of the Old Bailey proceedings, which were the published accounts of of trials that took place in London from 1674 um, until 1913. And we don't have exhaustive accounts for the period before 1715, so we can't get a kind of mass total of that period. But after then, we have a pretty good idea of all the the cases that were prosecuted in London. Old Bailey proceedings is a wonderful resource in terms of the information and detail that it gives. Increasingly in the 18th century, cases were more and more uh, supposedly reported verbatim, which means you get these very, very long transcripts of conversations and and exactly how people understood the intricacies of uh, motivation and and what kinds of evidence might be used to prosecute or or create a defence. There are some limitations with the London um, cases, particularly often fewer details are given for defence pleas um, than we might hope for. And sometimes if a case was uh, reported to be ignoramus and was thrown out initially, those aren't always uh, reported. So there are some limitations there. The Parisian records, um, I used a record called Catalogue 450, which is a record of the Parisian court of the Parlement. So the Parisian judicial system it was incredibly complicated at the time, but basically you went through all these lesser courts and then if you had been um, accused of a crime that carried the death penalty like murder, you were then sent to the court of the Parlement for an appeal. And this happened whether you were found guilty or not guilty or 
the huge range of sentences that the Parisian court had in between. The Catalogue 450 was assembled in the 1780s and it was supposedly a register of all of the cases that have been tried at the Parisian Parlement since 1700. Actually, there's lots and lots of holes in the data. Some of the records probably were lost in the French Revolution and there's lots of difficulties in working out exactly where the cases came from because the judicial stretch of um, the Parlement was, was very large and covered about 100 miles. So it wasn't just Paris. And sometimes you can work out which cases came from Paris and sometimes you can't. So there's some difficulty in knowing which were specific urban crimes and which weren't. The Parisian cases are also written in French legal shorthand, uh, which is pretty interesting to uncover. And there's some tiny, minute differences in some of the symbols, which are the difference between somebody just having undergone torture and somebody having been executed. So actually working out what happened to people can often be the tiniest little flick of a, of a pen could have led to something uh, very different. Uh, so that is also challenging. I think the biggest challenge was that in both sets of cases, gender is not actually recorded. Now, in London, that's all right, because uh, male and female names were different. But in Paris, there's a lot of names which both men and women had. So names like Claude, Stéphane, Dominique, uh, and even Anne, actually, was, was a male and a female name. So working out who was a man and who was a woman was, was pretty difficult. I use, sometimes use things like, so there's some punishments in France that were only uh, given to men, like being broken on the wheel or being sent off to row in the galère, uh, like um, Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. So I could use that. So if somebody had been sentenced to that, I could work out that they were a man. But I did end up with about 100 cases of people called Claude. And I thought that and then perhaps there was a particular study that I could have done just of murders committed by people called Claude. But in the end, I just left them out of my survey. So there were sort of gaps here and there, but it gives you a sort of overall understanding of how gender might have been present. Intrigued by some of the different kinds of punishments to which Anna had alluded, I next wanted to know whether the treatments dealt to male and female murderers differed routinely, and whether this was the case in both London and Paris. Yes, so there are differences in terms of the way that the courts treated men and women. In London, the most striking one is the sentence of petty treason. So this was a a specific sentence in London which was given for murders which were seen to have some sort of aspect that meant that there was a subversion of power within them. So the idea was that they were a miniature treason. And this was meted out for women who killed their husbands. It was also meted out uh, much less for servants who killed their masters or for curates who murdered their bishops. Uh, But so it meant that wives who killed their husbands were sentenced to petty treason, for which the sentence was burning. The last burning for this in London, although there were ones elsewhere in the country, was the trial of Catherine Hayes in 1726. And so this was the kind of main way in which women were were treated differently. Men could be sentenced to petty treason, and for that they were hung in chains. And in fact, one of Catherine Hayes' associates, who was her lover and also her son, uh, it's a very complicated case, um, he was hung in chains alongside her, and his body was exhibited on a gibbet afterwards. But that was kind of the key difference. Aside from that, men and women were usually hung in London. In, in Paris, it was much more complicated. The system of punishment in Paris was much more complicated in general. So in London, there was a much clearer sort of, you know, you were found guilty of manslaughter, so you would either be fined or you would be branded or you would be hung, and that was the end of it. In Paris, there wasn't quite this clear connection between certain crimes led to certain sentences. Often because this was looked over by a judge, they didn't have juries in 18th century Paris. It was an an absolutist system of justice that was 
intentionally kept very mysterious. So it meant that for every single crime, you could have a vast array of different kinds of sentences and different kinds of mutilation in particular. So mutilation was quite a popular aspect of 18th century Parisian justice. Again, men were much more likely to be found guilty of things where they were exclusively found guilty of being broken on the wheel, which was an awful punishment where you had each of your limbs broken with an iron bar and you were left stretched out on this wheel to die. It's very gruesome. And also men were sent to the galère. Women were often in prison. So in Paris, again, they had a, a large punitive infrastructure for imprisonment. And they had the prisons of Bicetre, which was for men, and Salpetria, which was for women. Uh, so women were often sent to prison for lesser crimes and actually for ent- the entire trial period. Women were also burned in, in France more often. So the crime of poison carried burning in France. So that was for both men and women, actually, uh, in France. France was generally more complicated and a little bit more violent uh, in what they decided to meter out to you. And you might have your hand cut off before you were executed, depending on what you've done and things. There's all these kind of codifications and symbolisms of uh, murder. I mean, there's also expectations that people were more squeamish about doing that to female bodies. Actually, they weren't really, with the exception of, of executing on a wheel. Women were often mutilated and had bits of them cut off and things before they were executed as well. I was now keen to know more about the most common relationship between the murderess and her victim. I also wanted to gain some insight into the different methods of murder employed by men and women. Yeah, so I mean, this is a really interesting question because often female homicide is, particularly for the 18th century, categorised as being something that's quite passive and quite planned. So often people talk about things like poison as being the classic female weapon that, that women couldn't kill their chosen victims with their hands, so they used all these underhand methods. And this isn't really the case. For both men and women, the most common forms of homicide uh, were stabbing. Um, We can't get such complicated statistics for Paris, unfortunately. But for London, both men and women were most likely to kill their victims by stabbing and then by hitting them with an object. One of the interesting gender dimensions seems to be that men were more likely to hit their victims over the head while women beat them around the body. And I don't know if this is just a, a language difference whether it's because men are taller. Uh, In both cases, they're often using the weapons that are at hand. So for women, this is often things like pokers, quart pots. So a lot of women who were, about 20% of women who were accused of murder were innkeepers, and it was during some sort of dispute in an inn. So often it was things like quart pots and things to hand, where men were more likely to hit each other with things from their workplace, so tools and spanners and rods and that sort of thing. Men were more likely to use pistols. Women often didn't have access to pistols. And women did use poisoning in London more often than men so there's only uh, one or two cases of male poisoning but actually there's only about 12 cases of female poisoning in London in Paris it's slightly different poisoning was much more common in Paris and particularly for women about 20% of female murders were committed by poisoning in France and for men although it was only about 3% of male murder in Paris that accounted for about 112 cases so it was much more common in France now I I haven't quite got my head around why, why this might be Um, I think potentially it might just be because poison was more common in France, although there's also there was a real obsession in Paris with poisoning. And this started in the early part of my period. So in 1680, there was a huge scandal in Paris known as the Affaire de Poison, where a huge web of poisoning and witchcraft was uncovered at the court of Louis XIV. It was led by a woman called Catherine Monvoisin, who was a sort of sorceress, wise woman. But it went right up the echelons to uh, Louis's headmistress, Athenaïs de Montespan. And it was incredible 
incredibly secret case um, where Louis burned a lot of the records by hand at the end of it, which makes it quite hard to study. But it was all over the papers as well, as one would expect, by, even though it was, it was meant to be something hush-hush. And it led to a real obsession in France. I also have a theory, although there's no way that I can really prove it, that there is something to do with the fact that there was much more common food shortages in Paris. By this period, food supply in London was a bit more stable, whereas in Paris, famine was still a, an element. So there's still an increasing obsession with food in France. The other thing is that there is a judicial infrastructure in Paris that there wasn't in London to investigate these cases. So if somebody died of something mysterious where they had a sort of stomach complaint before they died in France, it was investigated and there was an autopsy. Whereas in London, they didn't have that kind of infrastructure. So poisoning was a woman's weapon in France in a way that it wasn't in England. In terms of the victims' relationships, uh, husbands were the most common victim of female homicide, where we can know victims, which is only possible in a certain amount of cases. In both cities, husbands are the most common victim. But in London, where we can get more information on victims, it does seem that actually there was a much more varied array of victims. So as I said, women were sometimes victualers. So you've got things like tenants... Uh, servants, people that they knew who they were drinking with or working with. And it's interesting that although uh, female homicide is often characterised as something that was taking place in the home, about 42% of London homicides were taking place in public yards or taverns or the street even, actually. So female homicide was something that was was with a sort of array of acquaintances within the household or within a close community where tension was more likely to build up. And you see this also in the age of murderesses. So in London, um, women who were accused of murder were usually about 36 or 37, which is much older than the average age of an old Bailey defendant, which was about 24. So these are women who are living in a community where clearly tensions have built up over time. For male homicide, actually, also, wife murder is quite common. It's a smaller proportion. It's only about 5 or 6% of male homicide in both cities. But what's particularly interesting about marital homicide is that we generally think, when we talk about things like petty treason, that there was this obsession with women killing their husbands because it was seen as a kind of subverted treason that your husband should be your king. But actually, when we look at conviction rates, it is men killing their wives which had the much higher conviction rate. So about 50% of men who were accused of killing their wives were executed in both cities. And perhaps this is because the cases where men killed their wives in particularly violent ways were the ones that were going to be prosecuted. So it could be that there was far more cases of men killing their wives that didn't ever make it to trial. So it was only the extreme ones which led to this pattern of execution. Or it could be that there was this increasing concern with domestic violence perpetrated by men in the household as well, which um, historians such as Joanne Bailey and and Garthy Walker have already started to trace. It's also interesting to note that male defences for manslaughter can't be used against women, really, because women were perceived as being uh, weaker. So when men killed women, they were much more likely to be convicted. Whereas with women, actually, the gender of the victim doesn't seem to make that much difference at all. Male or female, it's much more about the circumstance, the method of murder. So cases where there's more violent things, so things like where women hack at people with axes, or things like shooting or stabbing, they tend to have the more likely guilty uh, verdict, where things like kicking and hitting where it could be more of a manslaughter that seems to lead more to a not guilty verdict so for women it is is very much based on the method that they use but for men the gender of the victim and the circumstances of the victim do seem to have played more of a role in determining uh, whether a man was convicted or not. Anna had explained that many female perpetrated homicides took place in taverns and in the streets. I wondered what she felt this said about urban living as a whole in 18th century London and Paris. 
So I, th- I think what you see from these cases is that urban life was tense, that there was a lot of difficulty and violence, and that often, certainly the people that you find in, in murder trials, live together in very close conditions where tensions and difficulties could grow. Particularly, it's interesting that a higher than average proportion of women in both cities who were accused of murder were single women. And I think they were particularly vulnerable both to accusation, but also perhaps to living in situations where tensions could overflow into into murder. The idea that all female murder was plotted and premeditated is really not the case in 18th century London and Paris. And it does seem to be much more about the tensions and difficulties of, of living in, in often very confined spaces where there was often a high turnover of people. So you were living among strangers and getting to know people very quickly often in in places where the stakes for survival were also quite high in terms of getting your rent or being paid for things. So often it's where there's a perceived slight in terms of of money that uh, that things can fall to blows. But you also see a lot of the women who were accused of murder in in London uh, were midwives. About 20% of women accused of murder in London were midwives. So there you see things about the nighttime economy, I think, and um, the movement of women around the streets. When you look at homicide, you're looking partially at social actuality, how people live, but also about sites of fear. So people do have to make a decision to prosecute a homicide and also as a jury to then decide who's likely to be guilty. So you do get these broader sites of concerning female behaviour. So things like midwives, women running taverns, and then also servants. And servants particularly common uh, in Paris. Um, There's a much higher proportion of actual female servants accused of murder in Paris. And this, I think, is because the female servant was actually a slightly newer phenomenon in Paris than it was in London in the 18th century. And this concept of single women living fairly intimate um, and close connections to their employers was clearly something that was quite a site of concern uh, in Paris. In London, I think that had already happened a little bit in the 17th century because service had become feminised a little bit earlier. And actually, I think also employers were perhaps a little better at controlling their servants. So you have fewer servants being accused of murder than things like midwives and, and landladies in 18th century London. Finally, I asked Anna how her research might interact with modern-day assumptions about male and female violence. The question of how far it connects to today is, is a really interesting one. There's a lot of work and scholarship that argues for a sea change in the way that homicide and understandings of gender and homicide happened in the early 19th century and this is something that I haven't done enough research on to agree with or disagree with necessarily but the argument goes that with the rise of criminology and sexology and all these kind of Foucauldian ideas in the early 19th century the idea of of women as being passive becomes much stronger Uh, so actually the dynamics that you see in, in 18th century murder don't necessarily travel through to today. So there are perhaps arguments that 18th century London and Paris were very different societies than today. What I'm particularly interested in, what my thesis more generally deals with, is this idea of how female homicide is perceived. And I think you see this today, as in the 18th century, that female homicide is a rarer crime than male homicide. And that means that when it happens, and when commentators, when the media, when the judiciary are trying to understand what has led to this homicide, trying to explain it and perhaps normalise it, they're looking to much broader narratives of change. Sometimes these are things like extreme sexual activity or kind of stereotypes of murderers as being debauched or 
or, or on the other hand, being totally passive and committing something almost entirely against their will. But I think it is slightly more complicated than that. That's the sort of general narrative that female homicide is, is just not understood because you have these stereotypes that come into it. But I think you see it in the 18th century and I think you do see it today that actually there's more complex dynamics going on. When you look at a female homicide, often what we're talking about is much broader concerns about the lives of women in a particular area or, or a particular space and sites of power within that. But it is true that within female homicide, and I think you do still see it today, it is much harder to think specifically about this as a crime committed by a person because we are often too busy thinking about the implications of it as being a crime committed by a woman. <laughs> 